give thanks? Do you think about the words when you listen to this? That's the beauty of music is it brings to mind. Can you hear me okay? Am I on? Is it me? Okay, I'm good. Um, I never forget, right after the wall fell in our church in Houston, we had a couple of folks over from, uh, they were from Russia, but there was a father and a son who played that on the violin. And I always think of that. Just so much to be thankful for we have. Well, open your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 4. I want to take you to a passage that uh, I think is crucial, as all Scripture is, of course. It's, it's crucial to really our daily walk. It, it's, it's, I'm going to try to take you through ten verses of James chapter 4, which I would normally do in three sermons. If you do the math on that, you figure we're going to be here about two hours. No, I won't do that to you. I'll try not to do that. I won't do that to you. I'll try to do it within our normal constraints or a little less maybe even. But as you're turning there, what the matter of this is really is what it really focuses on. It's this idea that, of a question that I think all of us can answer in the affirmative. I mean, are there things in your life that you really struggle with that you'd like to see changed? Maybe in your thought world, maybe a besetting sin, maybe it's a, some sort of uh, more in your head, like uh, feelings of discouragement, or as we talked about last week, worry or fear. Uh, maybe it's frustrations that you find yourself giving into. Uh, maybe it's more of an action like gossip that you struggle with, or anger, or a sexual sin, or lying. I mean, are there areas in your life, and if you're like everybody else, there are things that you say, yeah, you know, I struggle with this more than I would like to. If you struggle in areas like this, James 4 sums up really the key to having victory in these areas. Because what he does is he deals with a heart issue. He deals with the heart of the matter, which is an issue of the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Uh, we sometimes don't think about our heart in terms like that where I'm not talking about our thump, 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 you know, coronary organ. Uh, the heart is the control, control center of man. You understand what I'm talking about? And to, to protect that deepest inner control center is really what James 4 verses 1 through 10 is talking about. It's talking about putting a guard over the heart, which is the wellspring of life where wellsprings of life flow from. It's in the heart that we find the key to changing even the most persistent sinful habits that we practice. You ever wonder why some people struggle, some Christians struggle, even in the, in the exact same circumstances, you can have two different Christians, and one of them will struggle from a deep sense of, say, anxiety or worry or fear, while another one, put in the same circumstances, doesn't really struggle in that? Or one person struggles with gossiping about somebody else, yet another in the same situation doesn't fall prey to that sin. Why do we as individuals respond the way that we do? And often we respond very differently in the same set of circumstances. Let me give you an example. We don't get this here in Southern California, but if you were to wake up on a January morning and outside, it's a Monday morning, you look out the window and seven inches of snow has fallen. You know, everybody looks out the window a little differently at that, right? I mean, the husband may get up and he may look out the window and start to get anxious, think, turning on the radio, starting to check the traffic, wondering if there's ice on the roads, 
going outside, clearing off his windshield, getting everything ready, and it's like, oh, what a pain. i got to drive to work in this. The wife might, if she's not working that day, or if she doesn't work, she might get up, go into the breakfast room, open the blinds, look out at this clean, pure snow with a warm cup of coffee, and think how beautiful it is and take pleasure in God's wonderful creation. The kids get up, they flip on the TV, they're checking to see is school going to be canceled. And they're awful excited if school is canceled. Why, why it's the same set of situations, but yet everybody reacts differently. James 4 gives us the answer to that, really. And James 4, 1 through 3 gives us the reason. That's point number one on your outline. The reason why, just to give you the heads up, what we're looking for here, is because each one of these people had a different desire in their heart. Each one of these people that had their desire either threatened or it was fulfilled or it was not fulfilled, and they reacted accordingly. Okay? Let's read James chapter 4. Let's just read the first three verses right now. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what is the source? He starts off right off the bat. He says, what's the source? And he says, our pleasures. It has to do with our desires. What is it that we, the thing that inside our control center we want the most? Let me show you this in one other place to build this control center. Turn over to Matthew chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. Peter answers Christ and says to him, he says, explain the parable. He's just told him the parable. And it's, he says, Jesus says, are you still not lacking understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. His point he's making there is, is Jeremiah's point, that our heart is deceitfully wicked apart from Christ, right? Who can understand it? That in that is nothing really but a, a, a brewing pot, as it were, uh, of problems, of sin that wants to be acted upon. Apart from Christ, the desires of our heart are completely and utterly selfish and sinful. You understand that? Completely. I mean, you, you look, you say, I got a, I got a three, three, two-year-old. No, you got to go younger than that. I got a six-month-old. They're so, I got a newborn. They're so sweet and perfect, right? They're, they're wicked little creatures, I'm telling you. <laughs> Every one of them. You don't have to watch them for very long to know this. They they're just don't know how to hide it as well as the rest of y'all in us, right? No, no, see, the heart apart from Christ, that is just about brewing up trouble, you know what I'm saying? It's about what's for me, what I want, what I'm going to get. It's all about me. It's depravity. What happens, though, when we are saved by the grace of Christ, right, is you get a what? A new what? What's the word I'm looking for here? New heart, right? Okay. Your new creation. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Uh, the, the stony heart has been circumcised, right? The fleshy heart now. You've got a heart that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that you don't have those old things that you're fighting against. That's not what I'm saying because you have not achieved glorification yet where you, where you have that in perfection, you're in the process, you've been justified, 
So Christ looks at you as righteous. You're, you're certainly justified before him. You will enter into heaven. And then he takes you on a process of sanctification where he is molding and shaping you into his image until such time that we have glorification where we actually get to realize that in its fullness. Got it? The process of justification is really what we're talking about here in, in, in some sense in James chapter 4. It's that process where we look at our, our heart desires and we say, hey, I still have trouble, I still sin, I still have conflicts with others. What is the source of this? And it comes down to what is in my heart? What is my heart desire? <clears throat> we spend most of our time, most of our energies trying desperately to deal with our problems only at the, the symptom level, right? <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> I'm convinced that probably nobody would ever want to deal with sin at all if they weren't feeling bad about it. You know what I'm saying? True or false? Think about it. I mean, when all the biblical counseling, all these different things I've done over the years, when people come to me, it's usually because they're unhappy about something. Their circumstances have turned upon them. And they're, they're discouraged. They're fearful. They're disgruntled. They're upset. They think maybe I can fix somebody else so that those people will then give them the desires of their heart, you know? We need, to get, we need to quit dealing with things on the symptom level. That's why your doctor doesn't want you to just take painkillers all the time. He wants you to deal with whatever's going on underneath it. And what we have here is if you were to picture yourself and your situation, the control center is the heart, right? And that's where your inmost thoughts and desires, the thing you want is. Out of that then flows your behavior, okay? You got the heart, out of that flows behavior. Those are the things you do, good, bad, or indifferent. Behavior. Out of those behaviors then flows one last little thing, and that's your state of being. How are you feeling about everything? Okay? And it's at that level of state of being that most people say, I want to do something about whatever my problem is. Very few people are actually looking at it and saying, I don't like sin. I want to do something about that. They don't like it because it makes them feel uncomfortable most of the time. And if you're dealing with it at the state of being level or the behavior level, you're not doing the trick, Right? All you're doing is basically trying to, it's like spanking your kid on the hand or something and trying to get them to do what you want, but inside they still want to do the other thing. You know what I mean? You got to deal with the heart. And that's what James is getting at here. Okay? Very, very important. Okay? So if, you're, if your desires are, are sinful desires, that will flow out into your behavior and what you speak, how you act, the way that you think, which is an action, Right? And out of that flows that state of being, whether it could be despair, guilt, worry, fear, anxiety, depression, uh, frustration, things like that. So let's just kind of, let's play a little game here, okay? If your heart, if one of the great desires of your heart is the praise of men, for example, what behavior might flow out of that? Just throw some stuff out here to me. Don't take long, I got three sermons to get through. Okay, yeah, you want to build yourself up so that people think you're something special, right? And the converse of that is you might want to what? Tear some other people down, right? Make yourself look better if you're after the praise of men. Flattery, different things like that all flow out of this. And what if, what if you want power? What's your, what's your reaction if power is taken away or threatened? You get angry, you lash out, different things like that. If you just want peace at all costs, You'll never confront and deal with things and people that need to be dealt with sometimes. If it's your possessions, you do whatever it is. Every action of your life is about what can I get. And my, my state of being is impacted by, do I feel like I have everything I want? Which it never has affected 
totally good for very long. Physical pleasure, all these kind of things. You can see if that's where your heart is, you will begin to, you, you feel the way you feel. That's your state of being here. Remember this? Because of the things you do, that's your behavior here. And the things you do, you do because of the way of what you want. Okay? I feel the way I feel because I do what I do because I want what I want. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, that's really important. What we need to do then is work on the heart level, not the symptom level only. The heart motivates our behavior. It's our control center. So here's the question. If what is in the heart is the key, what should be the desire of my heart? Go to 2 Corinthians. Well, you don't have to turn there. Just write it down. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says this. I think Paul just sums it up just beautifully under the Spirit of God, right? Therefore, he says, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, pleasing to God. That's the desire of your heart you want to to cultivate. We have as our desire to be pleasing to him. If pleasing God is my heart's desire, will that impact my behavior? You bet it will. Sure it will. Uh, When was the last time you behaved sinfully? If you think about that timing, you can bring it to mind, whether it be this morning, yesterday, whatever it was, and you can think of it. What was your desire? What were you after? Was it pleasing God? No. So you're angry at your spouse. Well, maybe it's because you wanted things your way. Maybe it's that idea of, I want power. I want my area protected. Uh, The last time you gossiped, desire to be liked, wanting the praise of men, approval of people, justifying sin. The last time you lusted, Pleasure was first. You spent your money poorly. Possessions were number one. If we can put pleasing God as a first priority in our heart by the grace of God, we will see our behavior begin to change and the corresponding emotions or state of being change. That's why John, in John 13, 17, it says, if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do these things. Right? If you understand that you're here to bring glory to God and to be pleasing to him, what a blessing to fall into line with that. Philippians 4, 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Pleasing God, you see, leads to that obedient behavior which leads to a position of blessedness, peace, fruit of the spirit, that kind of stuff. This is God's design, the one who made you, okay? However, when our heart's desire is not to please God, but is replaced by something else, problems begin to arise. So if my heart desire is, tell me, are these good or bad? Don't answer, okay? I'm just going to say them. You can think about it in your head. Success. A loving spouse. Some people don't have loving spouses. You understand this, right? Uh, Health. Beauty. Security, convenience, to be popular, for people to approve of you. Are those good or bad things? Some of them you can say, well, that's a bad thing. But a lot of them you can say, you know, it's not wrong to want a loving spouse, right? I mean, that's God's design. It's not wrong to want to have success, depending on how you define success, true success. I mean, God says to to Joshua, hey, then you'll have true success. Is it okay for me to want some of these things? Sure. 
It's absolutely okay for some of them, okay? But if that desire, get this now, if that desire, good or, or otherwise, if it gets elevated to be the main concern of the heart above pleasing God, it becomes a lust and is wrong. If I desire to have a loving spouse more than I desire to please God, it's wrong. Think about that. Well, how do I know when these things have gotten too important? Well, James kind of gives us that answer there in verse two. He says, he says you lust, that is you desire. Epithumia, it's a, it's a negative word for lust. You desire and do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He gives you two things there. I don't know if he's caught them, but he says, when you're willing to sin to get what you want, that's, you can tell that that desire has been elevated above pleasing God, right? In other words, he says, hey, you, 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 you wanted this thing, you didn't get it, so you committed murder. You say, well, I've never committed murder. Well, Jesus says, if you hate somebody, you've committed murder already in your heart. So you might lower that bar a little bit, you know what I'm saying? When I respond sinfully to things I don't get, he says, when you, you are envious, you don't have it, somebody else does, and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. So when I'm willing to sin to get them, when I'm responding sinfully when I don't get them, that tells me that even something that may be good has now become a sinful desire. Are you tracking with me so far? Give me one of those if you are. Anybody? Nobody's tracking. Everybody's tracking. You're good. All right. In, in most cases, it's, it's not always that the desire is wrong. It's just that we want them too much. Ezekiel 14.3 says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of iniquity. See, what, what, if I elevate a perfect family in front of pleasing God, you can see how I might start to make decisions that might be sinful even in order to achieve what I consider a perfect family, right? Because what I'm doing, like Ezekiel 14 talks about, I'm setting something else other than God and pleasing God right in front of my eyes. If I hold my Bible up like this, I mean, I, I don't see anything. And your experience in listening has just gotten a lot better, right? I mean, this is, this is, it blocks out everything else. Our, what needs to be in front of our eyes is that we serve a gracious and holy and godly God who saved us by, by his grace through his work alone. He has renewed us. He has, he has uh, given us this task to carry out and he's empowered us for it. He's given us his word, his spirit, all this kind of stuff, right? And, and my desire now out of the thankfulness of my heart as I seek to give thanks is, hey, I just want to please God. Nothing else is important. He did this for me. He owns me. I want to serve him. But when we don't do that, when we set up our own idols, our own desires on the throne room of our heart, the, 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 the results are horrible. Psalm 32, verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. James 3, 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. Romans 2, 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every sort of man who does evil. Look back in your Bible to Psalm 32. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. It says, when I kept silent about my sin, then I don't deal with the, this, this disorder of having uh, uh, wrong desires in my heart. 
when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, my, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away like the fever heat of summer. This is Selah. Francis read it earlier this morning, Psalm 38, verses 3 through 8, where it talks about, you know, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over. I'm greatly bowed down. I go around mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed. I'm badly crushed. I groan. Because of the agitation of my heart. When we move outside God's design, which is to have as our ambition being ple- pleasing God and begin to put other things on the throne, then sin is the fruit of that is sin. And then we start to see the fruit of that come out. And this is the condition that we end up in when we follow our sin. So that's the problem. The problem is a matter of the heart. Now what James does is he says, hey, look at the results. Now look down to verse Verses 4 through 6 of James 4. It says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? I mean, think about that for a little bit. Friendship with the world, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm not supposed to even go out in the world and be around them or anything? No, no, no. Just don't let their, their desires infect you. Don't let their uh, uh, priority system, their, their, their basic building blocks like Colossians 2 talks about become your basic building blocks. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes, makes himself, and that's significant wording. Do you see that? The person who desires that makes himself an enemy of God. Nobody else did. He made himself that way. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously, talking to God, desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us a greater grace, therefore. It says God is opposed to the proud, and here's where he turns the corner, but he gives grace to the humble. You see the picture of that heart that has wrong desires playing out in wrong behaviors and ending up in desperate feelings is a picture that is, is, de- is desperate, and nobody would paint that as their own self-portrait of their life that they want it to be. This is not the plan that a 10-year-old sits down and says, how do you want your life to turn out? Well, I want to be a big sinner that's really unhappy. No, it's not what we're after, Right? Everybody's after, you know, you want to be fulfilled and you want to be happy and all that kind of stuff. By the way, those can be wrong idols when you stick them in there, right, in front of pleasing God. If I want to be happy more than I want to please God, it's still a problem. He's more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. You understand that, right? But by God's design, the one who made us with his owner, owner manual provided, he says, hey, set it back down to where your heart's desire is to be pleasing to me. What does that mean? to live the way that I want you to live, to have as your priorities, my priorities, to follow me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, to put others first, to be about the business of being a witness, to bringing the gospel, the good news of Christ to those who so desperately need it, to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be built up rather than torn down by gossip or falsely built up by flattery. Are you tracking with me? You can build based on lies for a while. You can flatter people and do that kind of stuff, and I'm telling you, it all falls apart in the end. The right manner is, hey, we're going to put the glory of God first, and we're going to seek, because of what he's done for us, to be pleasing to him by his grace.
by his power. It's not like he's asking us to do something that can't be done. He's asked us to do it. For him to ask us and, and not give us the ability to carry it out would be unjust. And our God's not an unjust God. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we aren't fighting against it hard. You understand this, correct? But the results, if you take the wrong path, are, are black and dirty and hard. But, he says, God gives a greater grace. Even though that's the way our default goes to that black heart doing black things and ended up with black emotions, he gives a greater grace. As those who have been saved by the grace of God, who have humbled themselves in the sight of the Lord, he will exalt you, right? He's opposed to the proud. No, it's all right, I got it, I'll do it, I'll do it my way. You know, Sinatra, right? And now the end is near. <laughs> I did it my way. Oh, please, right? That's, you don't want that, no. That's not the song you want at your funeral, by the way. I'm going to do it his way. How is that? Well, look at this. And, and uh, you see the remedy there in James 4, 7 through 10, okay? The fix here is a dramatic reversal, okay? You say, well, he's describing only salvation, Okay. I'll give, you the, I'll give you the fact this is a picture of what happens in salvation as well. But the grace by which you are saved is the grace you walk in, right? And, I, and has anybody here ever been saved and never sinned again? Anyone? Because you really ought to be up here speaking, not me. Of course not. So what has to happen when I sin? Is there a process like First John talks about where First John says, hey, when somebody's been saved, doesn't sin. That's the way some people read it, right? But in the same book, it says, hey, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a pattern that's going to go on throughout this time on planet Earth until what? Glorification. And I submit to you that what's being talked about here in James chapter 4, 7 through 10, is also a pattern that ought to be carried on in our life all the time. As we realize our priorities are out of whack, as we realize our desires are out of whack, Whatever, as we see sin in our own life, we need to go back to the core, deal with the heart of the matter, which is a matter of the heart. So look at what he says here. Verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your, be laugh, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So he really gives you like six strategies here for really uh, refocusing your life and getting your desires on track. Again, number one, the first one he says is submit. Therefore, is because of this, because he gives a greater grace, because he's opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble, because in and of ourselves we're going down a wrong path with wrong desires, we need to do something different, and that is submit to God. The word submit there in the Greek is hupotagete. Uh, it's a compound word. Hupo means uh, under, and it comes, tasso is like to, 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 to arrange. So it's really this picture of, it's a military term used to get in military formation to arrange under the authority of God. Okay, quit playing out here in your own game, doing it my way, and submit, therefore, to God. It, it speaks of submission as a, as a sense of voluntary yielding. William Booth, who's the founder of the Salvation Army, stated that 
while there were a lot of other people who were more intelligent than he was, and there were a lot better preachers than he was, and there were a lot more people who were even more qualified than he was, he says the secret how God used him greatly was that God had all there was in me. It wasn't that I was the greatest, he just had every bit of me. I love that. And that, I hope that encourages you. Unless you think you're the best at everything, that ought to encourage you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because my skills are, are weak. My abilities are puny. But yet, God chooses to use the weak. God can make the small great. When I'm weak, then he's strong, the Bible says. Humble yourself. It's the, it's God's economy that's so different. It's, we think, boy, wouldn't it be great if Kobe Bryant got saved and he could go around being an evangelist? It's like, no, you don't need that. You just need God to save somebody who's willing to just tell people about it. You know, us. We're willing to be faithful and give God all that we are. So we've got to ask ourselves when we come to the command, submit yourself to God. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Who sets the desires? I love Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. Living sacrifice. The great preacher Stephen Olfer once said, if you're a living sacrifice, what are you doing getting off the altar? I like that. You know, that's where we are when we... God saves us and we're following him and then we find ourselves seeking back into some little sin or something like that because we've allowed our desires to get changed by our own, ourself. You know, it's like, hey, we're getting off the altar. We're not acting like living sacrifices anymore. Submit, therefore, to God. Get back on the altar. <clears throat> so the first strategy is to commit the control of your life to God. Number two, counteract the devil. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you, okay? Resist is a defensive word, okay? It's to withstand an attack. And the promise there is he will flee. There is so much wrong in theology with the person and work and abilities of Satan. Too many people either overestimate him or underestimate him. You know what I'm saying? Don't do either one, okay? But I'll tell you this much. He can't take you over, Christian, because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You know what I'm saying? But he'll sure come after you, just like he went after Christ at the temptation and tried to distract you. You understand this, right? How does he distract? He distracts in a number of ways. If you go back to Genesis 3, you'll find that uh, Eve, he, he, he went to her mind you know, and tried to say, well, have you thought about this? Does God really, you know? Job, he, he affected his body and his circumstances and his his. his tangible world around him, his family. David, in 1 Chronicle 21, where he moved David to number, you know, the, the armies, the number of the people that God told him not to. Joshua in Zechariah 3, he went after his conscience. He, he's tricky, okay? He'll use scripture, right? A scripture poorly interpreted is a great tool of Satan. I mean, think about when Jesus was tempted, right? What did Jesus, what did he come at, what did Satan come at Jesus with? Scripture and what? His desires. What he thought might be his desires. So in other words, you're out here for 40 days, you're not eating, turn a stone into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's scripture, right? You see? 
Don't bow down, worship me, and give you everything. Is that what you're all after, Jesus, right? You just want all the stuff. He thinks he thinks the same way that Satan thinks. He comes after him at the desire level, and he twists scripture to make it sound like that, that desire is okay. You tracking with me? So what we need to understand is, well, how do you combat that? I mean, how do you combat if Satan came at you that way? How would you combat that? Number one, if you know what well and right, will you be able to deal with it properly? Scripture, right? Okay, so first and foremost, be a man, be a woman, be a child of the word of God. Rightly divided. Truth. That means you're in the book. You're studying the book. You know the book. It's not just something you get together and you read what, as great as they may be, what uh, MacArthur has to say about it or what a Swindoll has to say about it or anybody else or, you know, Ryle or anybody else has to say about it. But you're in the word itself, rightly dividing it. You're learning from other people. You're evaluating anything they have to say in light of scripture to see if it's so, be a Berean, right? If you know the scriptures and you are firmly rooted in the scriptures, if you let the word of God richly dwell within you, then, my friends, you will, be, you will not be susceptible to a twisted word. You see what I'm saying? I remember when I first started pastoring, I'd been there about two years in Kansas. Went to a funeral. This funeral was for a 17-year-old kid and got killed in a car accident. I'd been, his mother worked at the welcome part of the hospital and Kim and I had both been witnessing to her and trying to reach out to her before that. And as tragic as it was, there was a side of me that thought, well, maybe this will be an opportunity for the gospel as, you know, loss, you know, sometimes there's a chance just to get refocused here. Everything's not like you think it's going to be. And this other church that was doing the funeral, of course, and because they'd been members there forever, but never heard the gospel. And so a lot of our people knew them from the small town. And so everybody went over there to this funeral. And I'm sitting in this funeral. And this guy is just like, he, the first thing he says is, I want you to know, that God, some people would say, God, let this happen. I want you to know God would never do that. And he, then he goes on to this just homily of sorts about, you know, he's going to live on in our memories. He doesn't, give a, doesn't even talk about Christ, the gospel. There's no hope. It's just like, here we are. Just remember him and everything's going to be okay. And I just, it was all I could do not to just stand up and say, no, silence, you know. So I was really interested mostly about my flock at that point, some of which were in there. I'd only been there a few years. Are these guys going to get this? Are they grounded enough yet? Things like that. So I go around and start talking to them while we're getting our, you know, little dead people food and stuff that they give you, right? That's probably not what they call it. So we're, we're doing that, and it was so great to see them go. Without, I was just kind of saying, well, what do you think? You know, what do you and just kind of seeing their first responses and to hear them go, well, that didn't sound scriptural because of things they were learning from God's word under the ministry of our church. The best, the best way you can really set up that guard is to be a man or woman who is in the word, rightly dividing the word, not pushing what you want into the text, but taking out from the text what God has intended for you, okay? And to be in a, in a, in a fellowship like this, where the word of God is taught clearly, rightly, honored, and people that you can go to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me think through this? Resist the devil. The other thing you can do is make sure your desires 
are to be pleasing to God. If your desire is food, then hey, turn this bread into stone. It's pretty impactful. Worship me and I'll give you everything. It's pretty impactful. But if your desire is to be pleasing to God, that stuff doesn't even fly. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and the promise. He will flee from you, okay? He's not going to, just like in Christ's temptation, he came at him a few times and then he was out of there. Counteract the devil. Number three, come close to God. Come close to God. Excuse me, verse seven. Or verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, he pulls here from a, this, word, this Greek word that's drawn, translated draw near here is used in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, to talk about priests coming forward to offer sacrifices or ministering in the temple, you know, things like that. And we know from Scripture that there's a sense where you're a priest, right? Uh, and there's that aspect of it. Draw near to him. It's a worship thing. It's an abomination to seek close communion with God. But don't just take it merely as a nearly thing. You know what I'm saying? In other words, um, <clears throat> is God far away ever? I mean, like he's over there and it's like, I'm over here, I got to go over there. No, he says, I'm in the, heaven, the heavens and the earth, am I not, right? It's not that. I, I submit to you that it is, while it does have that context of the priest coming forward, there's even more to it than that. Nearness is, is in, in a sense likeness. In other words, align yourself with God. Have your priorities be his priorities. Uh, learn and grow to be more and more like him. It's not as much maybe spatial as we might think about. Now, we have moved away, if you want to think of it that way, uh, from God when we're in those circumstances by a love of the world, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, things like that. And we've been maybe even... Uh, distance in our relationship in a sense, although our relationship is still intact. But he's saying, no, come back to me. Come back to the, the, the main things, to the priority. Don't walk out there and let your taste be changed. Come back and be put your desire to be pleasing to me again. Not these other things. Draw near to God. Jeremiah, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been fighting a little bit of a sniffly thing here. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 says, God says, hey, if you'll seek me, you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Again, there's the heart again, right? The control center. He's saying, hey, when your heart's not divided, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. And you can see similar things in Psalm 145 verse 18, and you can see it in the prodigal son, different things like that. And an admonition to you here, I know there are people, and there may be even people in this room who are sitting there going, you know, I I've gone too far. God could never forgive me. I can't be reconciled. The promise here from the word of God is draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's his promise. So don't elevate your own thought processes above the word of God. That other one's just from the devil, right? Nah, you've done too much. He can't forgive. <coughs> that is to belittle his grace. You know, that's Holy Spirit conviction comes about very differently than satanic accusation and people really struggle with it. Which is it? 
when they're trying to work through things. And I think one thing that might help you on that is when the Spirit of God convicts you, he uses the Word of God, he uses it in love, and he seeks to bring you back into fellowship with the Father. Okay? When Satan accuses you, he uses your own sins in a hateful way where he seeks to make you feel helpless and hopeless and keep you separated from God. You see the difference? Stay close to the Father. It's like the old boy who was dating a girl, and boy, when they date in his old pickup, they'd be driving along. And when they first started dating, you know, she was sitting right up against him, man, arm around her, just driving along. His good life was good. Forty years later, after they've been married for a while and everything, he looks over and she's sitting all the way by the door, window open, getting a little breeze. He says, "Why are you? What are you doing all over there?" That's what she had. Well, I didn't move. You move just inch by inch, step by step. And that's the way it is with us and the Lord sometimes. Is we, it's not that we spatially are relocated, but we, we let our desire shift just a little bit and a little bit more until you look up one day and you're down the path and the path, you're, you're just way away from where you ought to be and what God would have you to do. You're not looking to please God at all. Rather, you're just looking to build your own empire. Do your own thing. Do it your way. Come close to God. Number four, commit your control to the life of God. Control your life to God. Counteract the devil. Come close to God. Number four, cleanse your life inside and out. Look at verse eight, middle of the verse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. A sinner is one who misses the mark. Double-minded, this idea, literally it's there. It's two-souled, undecided. You have split alliances. He's saying, walk, don't be that way. Cleanse yourself and, and move forward. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Hands signifying outward actions and deeds. A pure heart, again, the control center, inward attitudes and motives. You say, well, and this is where seminary students get all caught up. Sinners, well, can, a, can you call a Christian a sinner and things like that? Well, okay. Think about this for a while. If I farm, what am I? I'm a farmer. If I run, I'm a runner. If I build things, I'm a builder. You see what I'm saying? Grace. Thank you, my friend. And if I sin, there is a sense. While I'm not a positionally a sinner, I'm saved by the grace of God. At times, I look like, act like, and even perform like a sinner. Right? If I sin, if you say you haven't sinned in the last week, number one, you probably wouldn't say that. But realizing that you have, that you have sinned, you could say that you sin and you're a sinner. I understand the theological argument on that. Don't get confused. And don't let it just compartmentalize things much more than God intends. You see, what happens is we're not perfected here. And we've talked about this time and time again. We are being sanctified. And in the process of sanctification, my friends, there's still going to be sin involved. We understand that, right? But the direction, if not the perfection, is to to be towards Christ's likeness. So I'm progressively being sanctified, conformed into his image. And the verse that you really want to hold on to here, and I love this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 
was talking about how Moses is, uh, Moses came down from the mountain, you know, and he was glowing and stuff, and then it faded away, and he wore a veil so nobody could see it was faded away, so they didn't get discouraged. And he's talking about the glory of God being reflected there. But at the end of it, he says, Paul writes, he says, we all, talking to believers, with unveiled face, we don't have anything to hide because it's not being, it's not fading away. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, we are, check this out, being transformed. Okay? We're not fading away, we're being transformed, what? Into the same image. We're looking in the mirror of the Lord, right? And we are being transformed, this is beautiful, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It's a, it's a perfect ugly duckling story, right? I mean, God is working on us. He's changed us. And as we behold him, as we're in his word, as he is working our life after having been saved and before we get to glorification, he is doing this transforming work where we are becoming more and more like Christ. Are you happy about that? Man, I'm happy about that. I'm being changed. Five years ago, hopefully, I'm following him closer than I was then. Hopefully, I'm not struggling with the same sins, but I'll tell you what, I'm aware of ones I wasn't even aware of then. That I was too, too close to the darkness of my sin that I couldn't see the other darkness. It didn't even bother me. He's changing us. He's transforming us. That is a beautiful truth. So it's a process that's going on over and over again where he is continually working on us. He's cleansing us. And we're to cleanse our hands and we're to return back to him in repentance and to follow him. Purify your hearts. Cleanse your life inside and out. He's done the work, but he asked for us to participate in it by commanding us to be faithful to do what he says. Number five, change your attitude towards sin. We need to continually do that. You see that in verse nine. Look at it. It says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That sounds strange to us, doesn't it? What? I know, I know people, you know, there's Christians that go around, they're like just grumpy gooses, you know what I mean? Yeah, you think, man, did you get saved or what? And they're like, well, yes, I got saved. But I am a worm. I know, but, you know, you were a worm and now he's changing you. There's parts that you're missing here. He saved a wretch like me. He saved a wretch like me. In other words, the rest like me, I'm not thrilled with that. You dig it? But I'm pretty thrilled with the fact that he saved me. So what it's talking about here is it's talking about, hey, we're not, it's not that we're walking around like the God's chosen, frozen, unhappy, and just kind of mourning, and everything's a pain, and oh, it's sorrow. Wretchedness is not a room where God wants us to live. It is a door through which we travel on the way to renewed fellowship. Did you catch that? I understand as a wretch, and I understand it better than anybody else here. You know what I'm saying? But I tell you what, that's not my position. That's, I came through that with an understanding by the grace of God of that. And now I'm a son. I'm adopted. I'm his, bought with a price. He loves me. He gave his life for me. And he's working on me, and he's still forgiving me, and he's still welcoming me back as I prodigal here and prodigal there, you know. And why I walk towards the door of wretchedness from time to time, I have no idea, but sometimes I do, right? 
happens. Now what it's talking about here is not this just we're going to be unhappy. He's talking about our response to our sin, okay, through those desires that are set up wrong in our heart. Not that we should walk around gloomy. It's like Peter when he denied Christ three times. His heart was overwhelmed, wasn't it? He was just so beat down by that. He knew it was a sin. He knew it was wrong. Or David in Psalm 51 where he's just looking at his sin and talking about how he was conceived in sin and how sin has had an impact on him. And he cries out to the Lord, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Repentance and return, repentance and return. And then finally, number six, change your attitude about yourself. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble. That's not a word that's thought of very wisely in our, in our society anymore. You understand that, I know. Um, some of us like to strut around like we're the fourth person of the Trinity. It's not the truth, of course. We need to realize the wretchedness and the worms, worm side of things, the theology. We humble ourselves because we realize, you know, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and yet Christ died for me. In other words, I couldn't keep the law. I could not eat from a tree. I couldn't worship myself back into his presence. I couldn't make the scales have so much good on them that I outweighed what was bad so that I could get to God. There's nothing that I could do. I was dead. There's not any hope for dead, right? And yet Christ died for me so that I might live. I was an enemy (laughs) fighting against him. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, right? Gave his life, provided his grace and saved that wretch. Humble yourself. I didn't bring anything to the table. God has done it all. And how silly it is when I'm humble and rightly thinking of myself apart from Christ, what I was like apart from Christ, how silly it is for me to think I can set up the desires correctly in my heart, that I can pick out the right things to do. I need him to guide me. That's humility. I have to have his word. I have to have his truth illumined by his spirit so that I may do what he would have me to do. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and see the promise and he will exalt you. Uh, You see that promise all through scripture. You see when a person bows humbly before God and believes in salvation, he is exalted to the position of son of God, Galatians 3, 26. And when a person who is out of fellowship, who is struggling with his sin, humbles himself and aligns himself back with God's word, that fellowship is restored afresh. Peter asked Jesus one time, he said, hey, we behold, we've left everything. We've followed you. What's there going to be for us? Jesus said to them, he said this, truly I say to you, that you you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, talking to his disciples, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
and everyone, talking to everybody, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, God's economy is quite a bit different than ours. The way up is down, so we must humble ourselves and then he'll exalt us. Let me ask you a question. As we think about what the Lord has for us, that the call is that we are to give our lives in his service as those who have been saved by his grace. That we have been called to be pleasing to him. Do you see in your life anything that might cause you to think that even as a believer, there's, there's need for some radical surgery? That there's need for some heart surgery? That maybe there's a few things that have been allowed to seep in to your desire, to your control center that don't belong there. That we've set up at times idols that in our hearts and sometimes we want more stuff than we want God and more security than we want God and well we wouldn't say it that way but sometimes our life just shows that that's our desire maybe it's time for radical surgery and to, to identify those desires I feel this way what's the action making me feel that way the behavior what's the desire behind that fate, that uh, behavior and then radically change that by the grace of God tear down the idols and glorify God set up your heart your control center is a place that is pleasing to God and out of that will flow behaviors that are consistent with obedience and feelings that are consistent with the fruit of the spirit we're all about our feelings we just want to feel good and that's the symptom You see, if God, if, if we, if everybody here at Cornerstone, every one of us said, you know, I want to be pleasing to God, uh, to be the desire of my heart, to glorify his name, what do you think the impact would be on the planet Earth? Think about that. 130 people, 150 people, whatever it is, sold out, fired up shooting on all cylinders for the glory of God. I can tell you what, churches would never have to beg for money or workers or missionaries. Missionaries would never be begging to be sent. Pastors would be trained. Personal evangelism would be taking place. And everyone would be involved in discipleship at a number of levels, from being discipled to discipling. It's all about the heart. What's the source of the conflicts? It's our desires. May God, through his grace, help us to identify our idols, tear down those idols, replace them, put off those idols, put on pleasing God, and serve him with whatever breath he gives us for whatever days lie ahead. Amen?